You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. When traditional therapies for sleep apnea failed to relieve airway obstruction, what types of surgery should be considered? Joining us to discuss transoral robotic surgery for sleep apnea is Dr. Erica Thaler, Professor of Otorhinolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at Penn Medicine. Dr. Thaler, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I often hear that sleep apnea is underdiagnosed, that it is a fairly prevalent condition. How prevalent is that in the U.S. population? There are estimates that about 3% of the population has sleep apnea, mm-hmm. uh, which I think if you do the math, works out to about 18 million or so. Wow. This is based on some old numbers, and as everybody knows, the American population is getting heavier and heavier, so that may be an underestimate. Are there any numbers about how many of these people are undiagnosed versus those who are diagnosed and being treated? So the number of people who are diagnosed and being treated with CPAP, which would be you know sort of the standard first-line therapy, it's about a million and a half or maybe up to two million at this point. So a pretty small number compared to the number that probably are out there. About 50% of patients who are diagnosed with sleep apnea are not able, for one reason or another, to use a CPAP mask. There's also a sizable number of people who know they have it and, for one reason or another, are not able to use the mask. So a lot of people are either undiagnosed or not able to use the primary therapy and I'm an internist. I get the feeling sometimes when I go along the sleep apnea line of questioning that my patients are not being honest with me because they know about CPAP. They don't even want to go there. Right. Well, that certainly is true. I mean, in my practice, I see patients who have failed CPAP for one reason or another. They wouldn't get to me, you know, otherwise. So my opinion about this may be somewhat skewed Uh by who I see in the office. But I think it's a treatment that does work well for a population of patients. But you know, there's some fairly substantial drawbacks to it as a technique. You know, you're tied to a mask for life. It can be disruptive to both the sleeper and the sleeper's partner. So, you know, it can be difficult. May I ask you something about the diagnosis? Certainly, I think most of us know to look for the apneic periods punctuated by large snoring and excessive daytime somnolence, maybe morning headaches. Does physical examination of the oral pharynx give good indication of whether someone might have sleep apnea or not, or is is that not really reliable? I think that it's tough to guess based on looking in someone's mouth. You know, I find that... Even my exam, which involves the nasopharyngolaryngoscope, so I'm looking with a scope at the entire airway, starting with the nose and heading down through the nasopharynx and oropharynx. Even with that, you know, sometimes I can't really tell or I'm surprised at what I see versus what the sleep apnea numbers are on a sleep study. I mean, there are definitely people who, you know, you can suspect people with very large tonsils or tongue bases that are large that you can't even see their uvula or something like that. But then, you know, there are a lot of patients that you you really just wouldn't know. So if you have a high index of suspicion based on a history, better go ahead and order that sleep study. Oh, yes, absolutely. I, I would never stop based on a physical exam. You would err on the side of going forward. And before we get into surgeries, may I ask you just about the, I guess, second therapeutic approach, at least that's how I think of it, these oral appliances. What are your feelings about their tolerability and efficacy? So 
the oral appliances are very useful for people with snoring and mild sleep apnea. I think when you start getting into numbers where we think about surgery, which would be an apnea hypopnea index, you know, in sort of 20 or above, they stop being as effective. I think you have to look at the specifics of the sleep study. If somebody has a predominant supine sleep apnea, then that might, you know, give you a hint that they would be effective even at maybe a higher number than you might otherwise choose. You are limited in patients who have a TMJ disorder or some, you know, dental issue of one sort or another where they can't wear the appliance. That sometimes can be a reason not to use them. But they're certainly an effective strategy, so not something to be ignored, particularly if it's a patient with more mild problems. If we do have a patient who, as you stated, is very common, cannot tolerate CPAP or may not be a good candidate for an oral appliance, what are the surgical options that are available? The standard or traditional surgery for sleep apnea is the uvulopalatopharyngoplasty, which is a tonsillectomy, if the patient hasn't already had one, plus sort of reshaping the palate a little bit and trimming off the uvula. So that is a surgery that's been around for you know, a long time now, 30-plus years, 40 years. It doesn't have great efficacy if you take all comers. You know, sort of the best that it can do is about 50% success rate, and if you look at the numbers even more closely than that, it can look a lot worse even than 50% success rate depending on what type of patient you look at. It's a very effective surgery for people who have tonsillar hypertrophy, But there are certain shapes of palates where it can be not that effective. Those patients who have sort of a narrow arch to their palate may end up scarring down so that any benefit you've gotten from the tonsillectomy actually is countermanded by some scarring that occurs in the junction between the nasopharynx and the oropharynx. So that's sort of the traditional thing. Beyond that, in the world of otolaryngology, what people have looked at in the last 10 or 20 years is ways of augmenting that surgery, and mostly that's involved addressing surgery at the base of tongue. There's been this recognition that tongue base obstruction is also important, maybe secondary to palate, but also important in the obstructive part of sleep apnea. So people have tried to devise surgical procedures that will give more space at the tongue base, so just in front of the epiglottis. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today discussing transoral robotic surgery for sleep apnea is Dr. Erica Thaler, professor of otorhinolaryngology, head and neck surgery at Penn Medicine. Dr. Thaler, is this TORS or transoral robotic surgery one of these tongue-based procedures? Yes, it is. The difficulty with doing surgery at the base of tongue is that it's very hard to visualize the whole expanse of the back of the tongue. It's hard to get there. It's hard to make a surgical field where you can see and do a lot with it. There are some important neurovascular structures at the base of the tongue that you want to avoid. If you had need for surgery there, say, for instance, for cancer, typically these were done with external incisions, which, of course, you know, you would never do for someone with sleep apnea. And so it was a territory that was kind of ignored for a while, mostly because we just really didn't know how to get there. Uh So people have tried to work around it with injectable 
surgical devices or microscopes or endoscopes to get around to the base of tongue. The robotic surgery has afforded us the opportunity to get back there because the visualization is so much better than it is with other techniques. And is this similar to the, say, Da Vinci robot? That it is the Da Vinci robot. It is. So, so yeah. it's the same thing. And it just gives you much better visualization of the surgical field. That's right. How does this work uh, in terms of treating sleep apnea? Is it efficacious? Well, so what we do is basically there is tonsillar tissue at the base of tongue, so lingual tonsillar tissue. And we do a lingual tonsillectomy. You can also take some of the tongue musculature itself. I haven't typically done a whole lot of that. Some other people around the world who are starting to do this technique have been a little more aggressive in that regard than I have been willing to be. But you do a lingual tonsillectomy and resect as much tissue as you think is necessary, the tongue base. So we've done uh, almost 20 of these patients now. We've been doing this for a little over a year, and we've had some good success. Our numbers are floating around 70% success rate now in terms of a surgical cure, mm-hmm. by which we mean a reduction of the AHI, the apnea hypopnea index, of greater than 50% and lower than an AHI of 20. Mm-hmm. So both things have to pertain. And I can understand your reluctance in terms of taking the tongue musculature. You don't want to fix the sleep apnea problem and create problems with speech and, and swallowing, swallowing and things like right, that. That's right, yeah. Are there particular risks of this type of procedure? So the risks are similar to the risks of uvulopaltopharyngoplasty, which include dysphagia, uh, postoperative bleeding. The rate there would be, you know, depending on what study you look at, anywhere from 2% to 10%. And then because the robot itself is sort of bulky and big and getting into a small space, you know, smaller things like chipped teeth and swollen lips or tongue, that kind of thing, that are transient. Mm -hmm. In our patients so far, we've had one patient who came back with a postoperative bleed about a week afterwards, which I did need to take back to the operating room. A couple of other patients who reported bleeding, but, you know, we never saw or never had to manage that patients came into the emergency room or the office, and by the time they came, really didn't have any bleeding of significance. We've had a couple of patients who've had some transient swallowing trouble that resolved relatively quickly afterwards, also some transient taste disturbance, which resolved fairly quickly afterwards. The biggest difficulty with this surgery, which I wouldn't consider a complication, but certainly something that the patient has to consider, is that it is very painful. And so it takes about two to three weeks to recover from, and that time is spent, you know, with narcotic pain medicine. It it is not a trivial thing to consider when you're planning to go through it. I was going to ask you because in my practice, I've had a few patients who've either had, I guess, the resection type of UV PPP or some with laser treatment. And, and that was one thing they both reported that the recovery can be uncomfortable and, and take a while. That's correct. And so this is fairly similar to the more standard procedure? That's right. I mean, if anything, I would imagine it, it's worse because, you know, there's that much more that's been resected. Would that translate? Do we have any data or or speculation? Would that additional resection then translate to a more sustainable cure for the sleep apnea? 
you know, these are early days, but it certainly seems to be that way based on the numbers we have so far. Really, with any of the tongue-based procedures that are out there, the best numbers that you're going to get are probably in the 70 to 80% range. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are a variety of reasons for that, but probably the biggest one is that there are some people in whom you just can't create that extra anterior to posterior dimension in the airway that you might need to overcome the obstruction. And so there is a percentage of patients who, you know, there's just not enough material to take out Mm -hmm. to do Mm -hmm. it by managing from inside out. Now, there is another procedure which is done for sleep apnea, which is a maxillomandibular advancement. And that is a much bigger surgery even than the robotics in UP3 with a much longer recovery. But there are certainly some practitioners around the country, some surgeons who report very high success rates in the 90 to 95% range. Well, this sounds like a very exciting new field. Obviously, you're doing this at Penn. If there are interested patients around the country, are there other centers that you know of who are also doing this robotic approach? There are. The robotics for the TORS procedure, which is transoral robotic surgery, was devised here at Penn by my colleagues Greg Weinstein and Bert O'Malley for cancers at the base of tongue. And so they've been doing it now five or six years or so, and most of the innovation has been, you know, for in surgical oncology. So there are a number of people around the country who have been operating in this area, but mostly for cancer. There are a few people now who have started taking this on for sleep apnea. So there are a couple centers around the country, but, you know, nobody's really written about it or presented any data yet of significance. There is a surgeon in Italy does exclusively sleep apnea surgery, Hmm. and he reported on it at an academy meeting last fall, but it was, you know, somewhat preliminary data as well. So, So there just isn't a whole lot of information yet out there. Maybe a good place to do it, given the recovery, if you have all that soft pasta to eat after the (laughs) surgery. Well, I think they're a little uh, friendlier to their patients in the post-operative setting. They keep them in the hospital for a long time. Now, he actually trached all of his patients, so that, you know, made it a little different surgery than what we're doing. But the Italian medical system is a little different from ours, and Mm -hmm. they have a little more leeway with what they can do in terms of inpatient surgical management, so... I very much want to thank our guest, Dr. Erica Thaler, for explaining to us a new approach, the TORS or Transoral Robotic Surgery for Sleep Apnea. It sounds like a very exciting new frontier that we'll be hearing more about in the future. Dr. Thaler, thank you so much for being our guest this week on Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. To download this program or access ReachMD on demand, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.